Praise the Lord. All right. Well, we are entering our second week in the book of Lamentations. We are in chapter 2. I entitled this, uh, this week's sermon, God on Trial. We are going to be talking about one of the greatest challenges and questions of Scripture. That is, God's relationship to suffering and evil and his allowance of it. This chapter seems to kind of place God on trial. I'm going to read some of these verses aloud to you guys. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all of the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of Judah. Verse 4. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who are delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. Verse 5, the Lord has become an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all of its palaces. He has laid in ruins its stronghold. And he has multiplied the daughter of Judah uh, in mourning and lamentations. Uh, We can't read the whole chapter, so we're kind of highlighting here. Verse 7, the Lord scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on day of festival. Verse 8, the Lord was determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He calls the rampart and wall to lament. They languish together. And then verse 11, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry out to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. And then verse 13, this is a message translation, says this. How can I understand your plight, dear Jerusalem? What can I say to give you comfort, dear Zion? Who can put you together again? This bust up is past understanding. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bless your word this morning. Uh, limitations is a challenging and has some difficulties within it. And Lord, help us to be honest with those to really wrestle with them. But Lord, above all, would it be your words that are said this morning and not my own. And Lord, would your spirit be preaching this morning to the hearts of those in this room and not my own. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. In your name we trust. Amen. The author has accused God of becoming like an enemy, scorning his own altar, and the one who was determined to lay in ruins its strongest buildings. He is said to have cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. Without mercy, it was said that he swallowed up homes and houses. He has become like an enemy, bending their bow. His judgment is so extensive that even children suffer a faint and hunger, infants expiring on their mother as a nurse, and it is all past understanding. 
This is our good God. We just heard a testimony this morning. And maybe you're feeling a tension of like, well, this is a weird thing to follow up from a story of healing, right? Um, there's tension here because this is our good and loving God we are talking about. How do we reconcile these things? I'll never forget standing with my wife looking at the ultras- ultrasound in the third month of her pregnancy. The baby was no longer moving. No heartbeat was found. But worse, the embryo had tried to divide, but the other division had become a tumor, and that tumor was responsible for the death of the baby as it consumed all of the nutrients and foods. The majority of women, I believe, uh, who received this rare condition would wind up with a cancerous womb. Thankfully, God spared my wife from this, but it was after six months of testing that we were unsure if she would wind up in that category. After receiving the news that day, we climbed into our car. We were in stunned silence. What do we do now? How do we go home and tell the kids? How do we respond to this? I told myself I wouldn't do that reading that story, but I did it anyway. This was my question as I wrestled during those trying times. Excuse me. If we had some supernatural ability over my neighbor to make or break the success of their pregnancy inside the womb, and this was my question, right, that I had with God, Who would ever allow something like this to happen? One of the verses we just read, verse 8 in chapter 2, says that God determined to lay in ruins Zion. That word references a thought out, thought through, calculated plan by God. Not a whim of anger, not an outburst of wrath against his people. No, this was calculated. And even the children and infants of Jerusalem suffered beneath that determination. If we are learning to lament as a church, we must face this difficult and seemingly impossible question head on. What do you do with this? You might read this limitations and think, ah, I must have missed that part of my Bible when I read this before. But the Bible is written by humans just like you and I, humans writing beneath the inspiration of the Spirit, but nevertheless writing as a person. These are raw, yet carefully expressed emotions as they are written in very high poetic form. This is not something quickly written by the author. It was a write and a rewrite and a rewrite, right? This is high poetry we're reading here. God determined for you and I to have these words 2,500 years later for a reason. And this morning, I want to get ready to kind of wrestle with God. So this sermon was especially unique and challenging in preparation because I found myself in a continual pattern of trying to bring resolution to this question of God's relationship to suffering and evil. Rather than just allowing myself to explore the topic as deeply as Jeremiah does here in chapter 2. As we are trying to learn in this series, the nature of lament does not always require a solution. Nor does it really even ask for one. The only solution, as we will see especially next week, is hope woven and threaded with faith. The nature of lament is is not really the exploration of the rationale behind suffering, but maybe even much more so, it's simply giving room to ask the questions and learning to cling to faith even in the midst of the absence of answers. I want to learn to ask these questions today. I want to learn to find the seeds of hope in the midst of them. 
sorry to let you down, but I don't have any quick and easy answers for you. Uh, for many millennia, people have wrestled with this question, and I hate to say that I have not solved it. But we get to lay the biblical road down for us to travel this morning on our journey of lament with God's word leading us as a lamp for our feet. So any sort, at minimum, this is what this does to our understanding of God. Any sort of simplistic understanding of God, it's challenged here. God becomes like an enemy against his own people, so much so that even their infants are expiring on their mother's breast. If that doesn't make you scratch your head in confusion that that is in our scriptures, what will? Because the tension is here. God is easily grasped and understood. I love sitting at breakfast and throughout the day my four-year-old just asks all these questions about heaven and God and he's piecing together things and it's so simple that even my four-year-old can begin expressing some basic just understandings of scripture but also there are plenty of times when God seems almost impossible to grasp and understand and the both are true together. When we read our Bibles and attempt to create an understanding of who he is by really digging deep into this thing and stringing verses together and trying to find, oh, this is the best we can do to understand who God is, it's only responsible that we do so with all of our might. I want to get to know my wife more and my kids because I have attached myself to them in love. It is a never-ending relationship of just learning each other, getting to each other's minds and, and wanting to know her more and more deeply. And yes, that is also true of our God because even more so, there's endless explorations of treasures of wisdom and knowledge of love to be found in him. But no matter how deep and wide that you go into the scriptures, there will be some parts of our God that we will not be able to grasp. Limitations 2.17 says this, The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. But then you read Psalm 72, verse 13, that says, Oh, he'll have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. There's a tension, and I love tension in the Bible. Isn't it great just to kind of sit there in the awkward tension of reading things like that and you just kind of let it soak and you're kind of staring at me now saying, well, can you get some answers here because I don't know what to do with this. I want, to kind of, I want to resist that to some degree and try to live within this book of limitations during this time. If we are to have the result of our faith deeply strengthened during this time at Emmanuel Church, we actually must in some part resist the temptation to tie a nice little red bow around the question with some quick answer that will satisfy the tension. So we can allow it, uh, well, so that we can, you know, further kind of stuff it down as we talked about last week, just another mechanism of not wrestling with the hard things and deep things of God. I want to argue that allowing these tensions to exist, even allowing the Bible to appear, and I emphasize the word appear, appear to contradict itself when it describes the character of God, which it appears to do, um, as we will show, it actually doesn't, there's a secret there, but it appears to. And you and I, uh, we need to allow those things to be the time that we are reminded that we are the creation and not the creator. And we need to be at peace with that distinction. 
Let me give you another really interesting scenario from Scripture that will further challenge you to this question of relationship, God's relationship to suffering and evil. Just to show I'm not making these tensions up. In, in, uh, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, we find King David sinning against Israel by doing a census, which the law said not to do because he would then profit off the collection of taxes and the law said don't do that, but he was going to do it anyway. And it says that he did so because the Lord was angry towards David. It said that God incited him against his people. That's already kind of interesting, but it's there. The same story is repeated in 1 Chronicles 21. And when it retells a story there, it says Satan stood against Israel and incited David against them. So I'm not making that one up, right? Talk about fascinating. Which one's right? Those are two very different ways to tell the story. If you were ever at my house early in the morning and I were to read something like that, you hear me mumbling. And you ever talk to your Bible? Is that just me? Like you read something like that and you're like, what? You know, I start mumbling and talk like, what? what do I do with with, with this? This isn't easily fit into some kind of coherent box here. Could it be in difficult and challenging times that there are aspects of God that is above and beyond our ability to grasp? The Bible actually confesses this to be true in Deuteronomy 29, 29, saying this, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to his children. There is more to God than revealed to us in the Bible. The Bible is, of course, sufficient for salvation and for godliness. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 claims that the inspired nature of Scripture is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correction and righteousness, equipping us for every good work. 2 Peter 1, 3 says, His divine power through the prophecy of the Scriptures has given us everything we need for a godly life through knowledge of Him. But I challenge someone to find a verse that says all of God is revealed to us in the scriptures. He is not, and I would argue, he could not be. Or the Bible would contain millions of pages that after two millennia, we would still be trying to write. So as we wrestle with God this morning concerning his relationship to suffering and evil, like I said, I'm not here presenting anything new to you. No new revelations of who God is. No new deep insights. But what we are here to do as a church is to lament. It is okay to suffer and in reaction be mad at God. It is okay to feel frustration at him for your plight. He is sovereign, yes, and in one breath we may blame him for everything, and the next we may weep on our knees confessing that he is our only hope. One day we may shake our fist at him, and the next day with the same fist we are reaching out in our bed of tears trying to grasp him with all of our might. This is what we see happening in Lamentations. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 19 says this, Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise and cry out at night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. 
It is in those times that we learn the nature of faith, the true nature of hope. The Psalms teach us continually this over and over. There's far too many instances to recall, but I want to briefly look at Psalm 13. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul? And how sorry in my heart, and carry sorry in my heart all the day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. I will say this boldly. One of the best things that can happen to us is to be humbled beneath the confusing and sometimes seemingly harsh events of life that for God's often mysterious purposes he has allowed to happen. In doing so, we must learn to not trust our own reason and our own self above God. We must learn even beyond ourselves to say, God, I truly don't understand But if I cannot hope in you, I indeed have no hope at all. This is a black and white faith being filled with the color of hope. For faith without hope is a cheap faith that will not survive the storms of suffering. Hope drives us to cling to our Lord. All the while, the Spirit carrying us along throughout this process, and it then leads us to obedience, the obedience of faith, just like it did with Jesus. Did you know that it says that Jesus himself learned obedience through what he suffered? The author of Hebrews had this to say. Although he was a son, Hebrews 5, 8 through 9, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. I know he's saying, well, he was already perfect. How did he learn obedience? And that's a different sermon for a different day. That's a fun topic, though. One of my professors in college, uh, Alex and I both had him, he had this to say. He said, I have never met a man or woman who have given themselves over completely to Jesus who have not received their share of scars in their journey. I mean, after all, we worship a guy who lived as a poor carpenter an itinerant preacher, a man who was rejected by almost all of his friends and almost all of his family while he hung naked on the cross in the utmost form of shame and suffering that exists. It is that man who said, follow me. And we have the nerve to think that sometimes God may allow hard and very, very difficult times to come to us as well. It might be said that in some respects we should expect it. Since Jesus himself is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we are called to be that man's disciples, the God-man in the flesh, and called to be in his image. Are you okay with this? Maybe we should quit trying to reconcile some of these truths and allow God to be God and allow yourself to be human. And yes, this is where reason sometimes fails us, and I think that's okay. Richard Dawkins, the foremost atheist of our age, had this to say in his book, The God Delusion. More generally, one of the truly bad effects of religion, says Dawkins, is that it teaches us that it is a virtue to be satisfied with not understanding. My question for Mr. Dawkins, if I had his ear, would be this. Is it then a virtue to claim to understand everything? I don't know how you would respond, but probably if he's 
you know, a person, he would say, well, nobody can un- understand everything, and that would be arrogant to claim that. And I would say exactly because Christianity provides us the reason why you do not understand everything. Because we are the creation, and we are not the creator. This may appear to, appear to be unreasonable, but I feel like it's actually very reasonable. But let's get our heads out of the clouds. I know Emmanuel has been through the ringer. It has been a long and arduous season. Maybe personally, in your own family's life, you have been in the spiral of sufferings as well. Or in times past, you have, been, you have that really big event in your life that you have still had a difficult time understanding why God would allow such a thing to happen to you and your family. And at times, you'd wish that God would just show up and appear in front of you and start spouting out answers after all your prayers that you have made. Because lament says, you know, it's okay. You can voice that. You don't have to hold back. You can work it out. You can confess to God how angry you've been at him. Confess your confusion to him because the scripture says you can be angry without sin. But God did once when somebody was voicing this, he did actually show up in a whirlwind, right? In the book of Job, the only book in our Bible entirely written to tackle this difficult question, it explores the question of God's allowing of suffering in Job's life, his loss of essentially everything, God's interactions with the Satan, which is Satan, the accuser, is what that word means, the accuser, and allow what happened to occur by his hand. After 38 long chapters of Job going back and forth with his friends, trying to figure out exactly why God would allow to happen what did happen. God appears in the whirlwind. He actually showed up out of heaven. You may think, ah, right, after so much reading, we get to have the answers. And then God looks at Job in a deeply poetic ending, and he says this, where were you when I created the earth? This is my paraphrase of what else he says, right? Do you recall that I created this world and created you? And yet you are the creation. You, my friend, are trying to understand God things. Can you trust me with the God things? And can you cling to me in hope, even in the midst of not being able to understand it? You see, the faith that I am calling you to have this morning is a faith that requires you to deny yourself. It is a faith that even after wrestling with this question, you find yourself saying, God, I really still don't understand, but I need you because I can't find answers anywhere else. There is no hope anywhere else. There are not answers to the pain inside of me. I have nowhere else to turn as we empty ourselves out of all the pride and the arrogance that can be found in our humanity. That's when God, I believe, looks down and says, yes, you are finally getting this thing called faith. This is what I wanted humans to have in the first place. Habakkuk 2, 4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right, upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Even at the very beginning with that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the very thing that we're talking about this morning, it was forbidden for us to have. And God always wanted us to see that. And him to say, look, I'm God and you're not. This belongs to me and he's to stay with me. Do you trust it to stay with me? And we were so arrogant to say, no, 
We want the God things and it destroyed us. Don't let this destroy you. Let it go and say, God, this belongs to you. I don't get it, but I have no hope anywhere else. I know that you are good and I cast myself and empty myself before you and I am all yours. Faith is the ultimate reminder of our humanness before God. The ultimate path of purging our arrogance that brought us down in the first place. It is the ultimate reminder that you and I simply do not have all of the answers in life. It is the reminder that God did indeed come down. The word indeed became flesh and tabernacled among us. He lived a human life we never could live. He himself paid by his own blood for all of our arrogance and pride. And after his resurrection has provided us now with even in the darkest, deepest moments of despair, when we feel as if God himself has become the enemy, and we find the courage to breathe those words aloud, that we are still undergirded with this good news. And we say, Lord, even without my understanding, I cast all, all of myself unto you in hope. How do we end such a sermon today? I thought it would be fitting to read a story from a kid's book. The famous 19th century novelist George MacDonald. I don't know if you've ever read his stuff. Um, if you haven't, read George MacDonald. It's kid's literature, but you're not too old for kid's literature, right? Are you? No, good. It's amazing stuff, I'm telling you. Fairy tales, it's fantastic. This story is called At the Back of the North Wind. It's a story about a little boy named Diamond and his interactions with the North Wind. Personified as a she, the north wind first tried to stuff herself into Diamond's room through a hole, and he kept trying to plug up this hole to keep her out, but eventually the wind uh, bursts through and he lets her into his life. Carrying him along beneath her arm in her cloud of breeze, she teaches him all about life, suffering, joy, love, and how she is behind it all with the goal of bringing more people to the country at the back of the north wind. Throughout the story, you realize that MacDonald has in mind the north wind as a bit of a personification of God and his spirit. It's a beautiful story, and it actually gives voice to this. The whole book is about this very conversation. I find it very fitting to end with an excerpt from this book. As the north wind tells the young boy Diamond, as she gently carries a boy in her arms, carrying, him for, uh, caring for him and loving him, that she must then go and sink a ship in the ocean with her wind. And this is the conversation. North wind says, I have to go sink a ship tonight. Sink a ship? What, with men in it? Well, yes, and women too. Well, how dreadful. I wish you wouldn't talk so. It is rather dreadful, but it is my work, and I must do it. Oh, dear North Wind, how can you talk so? My dear boy, I never talk. I always mean what I say. Then you do mean to sink the ship with the other hand? Yes. It's not like you. How do you know that? Well, quite easily. Here you are, taking care of a poor little boy in one arm, and there you are with the other sinking a ship. It can't be like you. Ah, but which is me? I can't be two me's, you know. No, nobody can be two me's. Well, which is me? Which me is me? Now I must think. There looks to be two. Yes, but which me do you know? Oh, the kindest and goodest and best me in the world, answered Diamond, clinging to the north wind. Well, listen to me, Diamond. 
You know the one me, you say, and that me is good. Yes. Do you know the other me as well? No, I can't. I shouldn't like to. Well, there it is. You don't know the other me. You are sure of one of them. Yes. But are you sure there is not two of me's? Well, yes. Then the me you don't know must be the same as the me you do know, else there would be two me's. Yes. Then the other me you don't know must be as kind as the me you do know. Yes. Besides, I tell you that it is only so, only it may not look like it. That I confess freely. Anything else you care to object? No, no, dear Northwind, I am quite satisfied. Well, I will tell you something you might object to. You might say that the me you know is like the other me, but that I am actually cruel all through. Diamond clung to her tighter than ever, crying, No, no, dear Northwind, I can't believe that. I don't believe it. I won't believe it. I love you, and you must love me, else how did I come to love you? How could you know how to put on such a beautiful face if you did not love me and the rest? No, no, no. You may sink as many ships as you like, and I won't say another word. I can't say I shall like to see it, you know. And that's quite another thing, said the North Wind. To say it like MacDonald did, we don't like when God sinks those ships in our lives. But perspective is what we lack. For times and seasons of suffering and the questioning of why God allows it to happen and to happen to a church body, this important part of lament has at its center a peculiar result. A continual battle to accept that God is indeed good all the way through. As John says, in him there is no darkness at all. That we know and that we cling to, even if it appears, as McDonald said, that there's two me's in God, right? Far from a cliche Christianized ending, we've come a long ways in this sermon. But now I want to land on these verses in our lap. Verses of hope, the ultimate result of our faith, that the resurrection has served us as a promise. A promise that for all who love God, that for those who love God, all things do work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The resurrection serves as a promise as John saw the final revelation of all that is to come. The promise of the resurrection that is applied to all of creation when Christ returns to this world and he throws evil and Satan into the lake of fire when everything is made new in this world with the beautiful words of Revelation chapter 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's our hope. That's what the resurrection promises us. And as these moments come in life when no answers are there, as your pastor, I'm not going to be quick to give you some kind of you know, bumper sticker answers that are on our coffee mugs. And like, oh, this may bring comfort. Here's a good Bible verse for you. Like, no, like, 
We need to learn to sit in that tension, but learn what it means to, even in your frustrations, read these verses and say, yes, Lord, this is our only hope in life or death. Let us pray. Jesus, as we aim to strengthen this church in our ability to suffer, or we want to suffer well, life will bring about difficulties, and as we know, life will bring about through you also times of healing, Lord, of joy and of peace and of wondrous times, but also times of difficulty. And Lord, they both, we know, they come from your hands. We'll see you next week, Lord, both good and bad you allow to occur. And Lord, with that mystery, with that question mark that has been remaining for millennia, Lord, we know that we cannot comprehend in full the, 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 the height and the depth of who you are because your ways are higher than ours. You told us this. Your thoughts are often not our thoughts. And Lord, you're the one who fashioned this world and created us. And we did not create ourselves, Lord. We cannot rightly comprehend this world as you comprehend this world. Would you teach us to be okay with that, Lord? If there's anybody in this room right now that has been just wrestling with this, and they just, they just can't understand things. They can't understand what things have happened to them in their past. And they just have been blaming you their whole life. I pray even right now in walking through this sermon, they could just be freed from those chains of, of pride, Lord. Freed from those. To say, Lord, you are God. I have no hope apart from you. Release us, Jesus, of our pride. And give ourselves over to you in faith. Lord, your resurrection still serves as that ultimate promise of humanity that you will come to make all things new. And you will rid the world of death and suffering forever. We look forward to that day. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. rise to our feet. In this time of desperation and all we know is doubt and fear There is only one foundation We believe This broken generation All is dark You help us see There is only one salvation We believe Thank you.
faith be more than anthem Greater than the song 